Hello, and welcome to Theories of Change, a podcast about climate change and the various strategies and approaches to addressing this global challenge. I'm your host, Sarah Ladislaw. Twice a month, we'll talk with experts about how to affect the kind of change needed to bring about a more manageable climate for future generations. We'll talk with people from all walks of life who sometimes approach climate change from very different angles. What we have seen happening over the last few decades, first of all, we have seen the science showing us that climate is changing faster and to a greater extent with more widespread impacts than we thought, it seems, with every new study that comes out. Today, we'll begin this series by speaking with Catherine Hayhoe, an atmospheric scientist and professor in public policy and public law at the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech University, where she also directs the Climate Center. Catherine is a world-renowned climate communicator who has gained a large following and lots of attention by making this sometimes complex issue easier to understand and appreciate. She stopped by to talk with us about how there's much more common ground on this divisive issue than most people assume, and the important role that scientists like her can play in helping to build more understanding and support for climate policies and solutions. We hope you enjoy. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. So just for starters, because it's always good to level set on where people are coming from, can you just talk a little bit about how you characterize the issue of climate change and where you think we are today relative to the challenge at hand? To me, the single best descriptor of climate change and why it matters actually comes from the military. It is called a threat multiplier. And I think that that is the perfect description because why do we care about a changing climate? Objectively, if the entire planet were one or two or three or even four degrees warmer, why would anyone care unless it affects things that matter to us? Mm -hmm. Climate change is a threat multiplier in that it takes all of the issues and challenges that we, we cope with today, including food shortages, famines, droughts, severe storms, hurricanes, cyclones, floods, heat waves, wildfire, and their impact again on our supply of food, water, energy, our economy, national security, our health, and more. It takes these issues and it exacerbates or amplifies them. So that single descriptor, I think, is so perfect because not only does it explain what climate change does, it also explains why it matters to us. That's wonderful. And I I love that you picked that one. I mean, but given the context of today, right, a world in which we're dealing with a global pandemic, COVID-19, that's kind of putting out in front of us how maybe ill-prepared we are to deal with some things, how does today's context sort of reshape how you're thinking about the challenge of climate change and quite frankly, like how prepared we are to deal with it or not? Well, we can all think back to around that second week in March when what had seemed like a distant issue that was only really happening in a certain part of China all of a sudden started to spread around the world like wildfire. And we started to realize that this pandemic was not something that mattered to people in the future or people who live far away, but it was going to be affecting us in the places where we lived very soon. And if we didn't take action immediately, there was going to be virtually untold suffering and loss. That was where we were the second week in March. We were seeing the warning signs. We knew that prompt action had to be taken. And that is actually where we are with climate change today. But here's the difference. The pandemic unfolds over days to weeks. Climate change unfolds over years to decades. Mm -hmm. 
And by the time we get to, say, the end of March in terms of the pandemic terms on climate change, at that point, we might be a number of years down the road and it is going to be too late to roll it back to where we were, you know, back today and say, oh, no, no, well, we don't want that to happen. Let's take action. It's sort of similar to being, you know, loaded onto the ambulance after you've had a heart attack and you're saying, oh, don't take me to the hospital. I promise I'll take my medicine. I'll exercise. I'll eat in a much more healthy way. (laughs) At that point, it's too late. So that's where we currently stand with climate change. And that is why action is so necessary because here's the thing. Ultimately, we care about climate change for the same reason we care about the pandemic. No matter who we are, no matter what language we speak, no matter what country we live in, even no matter where we fall in the political spectrum, the pandemic threatens our health and our safety and that of our family, our loved ones, our community, the places where we live, the country and the world. That is exactly what climate change threatens too. And that's why I firmly believe that to care about climate change, we only have to be one thing. And that one thing is not a tree hugger. It is not a liberal. That one (laughs) thing is somebody who lives on planet Earth. And as far as I know, that includes all of us. Luckily, I think, yeah, that does encompass all of us. And I wanted to recommend to our listeners, you do have a wonderful uh, couple episodes on your global weirding video podcast series that talk more about this, which I think are just really great resources for people. But, you know, one of the other sort of analogies that springs to mind for me sort of sitting in my home, you know, weeks on end trying to think about just that basic question of, you know, how does one get back to work in an economy that's been shut down for global health reasons? There's another analogy between that and climate change which is to get started seems like such a daunting task, right? To like re-engineer the world in a way that can actually effectively deal with this is really tough. And a lot of times people are trying to figure out, you know, how do I get started? Or what are the big sort of systemic things that need to happen to affect change? I mean, when you think about climate change, what are some of the biggest systemic constraints in your mind? And what kind of interaction, whether it's technology and policy or policy and society, would you most want to see unlocked to be able to more effectively deal with the challenge? Well, to understand the solutions, we have to understand the causes first. And today, first of all, we know that although natural factors like natural cycles and volcanoes in the sun have certainly affected climate in the past and are continuing to affect it today, we know that according to natural factors today, we would very, very, very gradually, slowly be getting cooler. We wouldn't be warming. So we know that the only reason we are warming is because of human activity. And furthermore, we know three quarters of that warming, 75% of the warming, is specifically due to the fact that since the dawn of the industrial era, we have been digging up increasing amounts of originally coal and then later oil and gas and burning it to power our society. That is 75% of the problem. The remaining 25% of the problem is large-scale deforestation and animal agriculture. We have the mass of cows on the planet is greater than the mass of humans, and cows <laughs> produce a lot of heat-trapping gases. You may say humans do too. I think we all have certain family members, <laughs> but cows really have us all beat on that. So Our unsustainable land use is part of the problem, but 75% is our dependence on fossil fuels. And here's the thing. We often think of the transition to a clean energy economy as a daunting task. And as you even just said in your question, how do we even get started on it? It turns out we already have gotten started. This isn't some giant boulder that a few hands are trying to roll uphill. The boulder is already starting to roll downhill. 
It's been six years, 2014, so it's been six years since new installations of clean energy overtook new installations of fossil fuel electricity. So as of now, I think we're up to 70% of new electricity, new energy sources being installed around the world are clean energy. Um, Here in Texas, we've already got uh, almost 20% of our energy from wind and our solar installation is doubling every year. We've got more jobs in the solar industry alone across the U.S. than in the fossil fuel industry in terms of electricity supply. China actually leads the world in clean energy installations. And that's something a lot of people don't know. People say, why are you talking to us about climate change? Go over there and talk to China. When they clean up their act, then we'll get started on ours. And what people don't realize, first of all, is that the U.S.'s cumulative carbon emissions, so our carbon emissions added up over time, which is what's causing climate to change, Our cumulative carbon emissions are double those of China. Our per-person emissions are double those of China. And China is going gangbusters on the new clean energy economy because it realizes it's the way of the future. And that could actually end up being a serious technological, economic, and even potentially a serious security issue for the U.S. in the future. If the U.S. continues to depend, metaphorically speaking, on horses and buggies for transportation, well, China's moving ahead with the Model T Ford. That's sort of where we would have been, you know, 120 years ago. Well, that's (laughs) where we are today with clean energy and fossil fuels. (laughs) So, you know, Catherine, you've been doing this for a while, and, and I think you've just touched a little bit on this, which is the momentum certainly seems to be on the side of the activity that we need to see to decarbonize the global economy. But I was just curious, like from your own perspective, what's changed over the period of time that you've been working on this and how has it sort of informed your perspective about lessons learned about what some assumptions we might make about the challenge that's before us? Mm. Well, I will tell you, when scientists first started to reach out and communicate on this issue, and honestly, it's been 55 years, actually, since (laughs) scientists first warned a U.S. president about the dangers of climate change, and that president was Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, 1988 was the year when Jim Hansen, a very well-known climate scientist from NASA, first testified before Congress regarding the dangers of global warming. So when scientists first started to talk to people about this, Uh, We naively assumed that if we just tell people the information, everybody will say, oh, that sounds very serious. Let's act immediately. And as we now know, with the benefit of hindsight, that is not what happened. Why didn't that happen? It's Mm -hmm. because what we have seen happening over the last few decades, first of all, we have seen the science showing us that climate is changing faster and to a greater extent with more widespread impacts than we thought, it seems, with every new study that comes out. Rather than overestimating the severity of climate change, there is significant evidence that scientists have either got it right on the nose in terms of global temperature change or have underestimated the impacts in terms of how Climate change would be loading the weather dice against us, burning more area due to wildfire, increasing the risk of uh, heavy precipitation and floods, making a hurricane stronger. So the science has shown that it's getting worse. But you know what's happened? Over the last few decades, whether we agree with almost 150 years of science telling us that digging up and burning fossil fuels is producing heat-trapping gases that wrap an extra blanket around the planet and that's why we're getting warmer, whether we agree with those facts that we've known since the 1850s is not how smart we are, it's not how educated we are, it's not how much science we know. 
increasingly, it is simply where we fall on the political spectrum. Mm. Climate change is, according to the Pew Foundation's polling this year, the most politically polarized issue in the entire country. Wow. But a thermometer doesn't give you a different answer, depending on how you vote. It still <laughs> says the planet is warming. So why is that? That's that's what really took scientists by surprise. But for those of us who study human nature, we probably shouldn't be surprised because it isn't objections to the basic science that's driving this. It's objections to the perceived solutions. It's almost like you're trying to take somebody's teddy bear away when we're saying, look, we've been using fossil fuels now for hundreds of years. And they have brought us untold blessings. I personally am very grateful for what fossil fuels have brought us. They enabled us to increase our quality of life, to effectively double our lifespan. They have freed us from the endless drudgery that used to be gathering food and water and washing clothes and cleaning. They actually enabled the North to win out over the South in the Civil War and free the slaves. So fossil fuels, do not get me wrong, they have brought us tremendous blessings, but just as we no longer use horses and buggies, in the same way it is now time to transition to a new clean energy economy. But here's the challenge. We live in a world that is changing very quickly and many people are afraid at the pace of change. And as we're afraid, we tend to lash out at what we see as symbols of that change. And one of the symbols of the change is recognizing that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and we need to transition our economy off fossil fuels. Complicating this is the fact that when you look at our carbon emissions, it turns out that 90 companies are responsible for two-thirds of all of our heat-trapping gas emissions since the dawn of the industrial era. And mm. when you look at those 90 companies and you go to the list of the richest corporations in the world, there is a significant overlap between those two lists, which means that the richest corporations in the world, most of them are highly incentivized to keep us dependent on fossil fuels as long as possible for their quarterly returns. So this is a wonderful description of both the political and sort of economic challenges that go into, which I totally agree with you, the people's opposition to thinking about the type of change that needs to take place. I mean, just to push on that a little bit further, like what are the very next steps that need to happen, given all of the sort of dynamics that you just described? You know, some people would say, if I was given a climate magic wand, I would, you know, have a carbon tax or I would, you know, create a, a technological breakthrough or, I mean, from your perspective, what would the next steps look like to getting to where we need to go? Hmm, that's a great question. I think that there's a difference between what you can do with or without a magic wand. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll take one if you have one, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I would too. If I had a magic wand, I would just suck all that carbon out of the atmosphere right away. That's I think that would idea. probably <laughs> be the best. But we definitely have solutions. And there's no one silver bullet that could fix the whole thing. I know that many people argue there is. People have their favorite solution. And some people argue, they'll say, oh, veganism is the silver bullet or not having children or not flying or nuclear power. They'll argue that different things are the silver bullet. But in reality, when you actually drill down and you look at how much those could offset our fossil fuel use, how they could affect our land use and our agriculture, what percentage of our emissions is due to each source, we realize there is no silver bullet. 
But what we do have is we have a lot of silver buckshot. Mm. So there's this great resource called Project Drawdown. It's online at drawdown.org. And what they have done is they've collected information from hundreds of sources and compiled a huge list of solutions to climate change that include technological solutions. They include energy solutions. They include efficiency solutions. They include planning solutions, lifestyle and education solutions. It is this amazing kind of buffet of positive, beneficial solutions to climate change that are practical and that are here today without needing a magic wand. Mm. So why aren't we doing so many of these? Well, unfortunately, one of the biggest reasons that we're not doing it is, first of all, because Change requires effort and energy, even if the change is going to be better in the long run. It still takes energy to, you know, clean the house, even though you know the house is going to be much cleaner when you're done. (laughs) And not only that, but fossil fuels are actually highly subsidized. Now, people will say, what are you talking about? I thought renewables were much more subsidized. No, in actual direct subsidies, fossil fuels, I think, outnumber renewables by about two to one. But then when you Mm -hmm. look at the indirect subsidies, according to the International Monetary Fund, the indirect subsidies for fossil fuels, which include the health impacts from air pollution, it includes the increasing cost of disasters due to climate change, it includes the land leases, which some companies have held since the 1800s for you know, a fraction of the actual cost. It includes accidents like the Deepwater Horizon, the Exxon Valdez spill, and the impact of those and how much public money was used. It includes all of the indirect things. And the IMF has a full report you can look into see what they include. But they estimate that the indirect subsidies to fossil fuels total over $600 billion in the U.S. alone, which exceeds the Pentagon's budget. So there is a significant bias in our market. We are not operating on a level playing field. We are not operating with a true free market. So I am not a policy expert and I am not an economist. Mm -hmm. I am just a scientist who says we have to cut carbon (laughs) as soon as possible without harming people if possible by doing so. That's all the science can say. But as a human, I'm pretty practical (laughs) and I look around and I say, what's something that could actually get us over that hump? And something that nearly every economist in the world, including the two who won the Nobel Prize for Economics back in 2018, agree, is that if we put a price on carbon and we use the dividends from that price on carbon very wisely to refund to middle and lower income households so that they are not economically harmed by this price, to incentivize efficiency and clean energy, a price on carbon is supported by, like I said, nearly every economist in the world. And here's the interesting thing. Most of the big oil companies also support a price on carbon. There is the Climate Leadership Council in the United States Mm -hmm. that has founding members that include AT&T and Ford and ExxonMobil, and they have a specific proposal for a price Mm -hmm. on carbon that would return $2,000 to the average American household as part of the revenues of the price on carbon. In Canada, we now have a federal price on carbon that went into effect last year, and the four provinces of Canada that had a price on carbon before it became federal policy led the country in economic output. So there are these solutions that don't require magic wands that would help to equilibrate the playing field. So you don't need a government going around telling people you can't drive that car or you can't live in that house or you can't get on that plane. It's more a case of fine, you can do what you want, but you're just going to actually pay the right price for it instead of forcing the American people and actually, frankly, the people of the world to subsidize your lifestyle at their expense. 
And just one quick follow up on that, because I agree with you. You know, I think that there's a lot of economists that believe and have studied in depth the benefits of a carbon tax, both in terms of incentivizing low carbon technology, but also in being able to reuse revenue for households that would be affected by the increased cost. The problem is, you know, particularly in like the U.S. Congress, we don't have a lot of economists. And so they really have a problem sort of, you know, getting to a place where they would introduce an idea like that and largely, you know, have a belief, even though it's somehow not always supported in the polling that they couldn't, you know, get to implementing one of those policies, that it's it's something that would be too hard for them to do because there's not the political will for that type of thing to happen. I mean, Mm -hmm. do you think very much about how to change that dynamic, which has really kept a a carbon price, whether it's a cap and trade or a carbon tax off the table, particularly in a U.S. context for so long? Absolutely, yes. There is an organization called Citizens Climate Lobby that is actually dedicated to building a bipartisan coalition of support in the House and the Senate for carbon pricing. And they have actually been pretty successful because what they have is there's something called a Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus. Mm -hmm. And you are only allowed to join it as a senator or a congressperson if you join with a partner from the other party. So it is actually mandated to be bipartisan. And I think the membership numbers are in in double figures, not triple figures yet. But I think that if some of the other actors, for example, those who endorse the Climate Leadership Council I mentioned before, if they would step up and be a lot more public with their support, I think that we might see a bit more engagement because it is a free market policy. Uh, Bob Inglis, a former congressman from South Carolina and Republican, has an organization he now calls Republic N. I like that name (laughs) because referring to energy. And he makes a very strong case for how a price on carbon really is a free market policy. It's not a top-down government-imposed policy. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that while people don't want to talk about solutions that might actually work often, like carbon pricing and clean energy, people are excited to talk often about solutions that could work if you do them right, but they have a much bigger chance of not actually working. And I want to bring two of those up right now. One of them is carbon sequestration. So what is carbon sequestration? It's the idea that you suck carbon out of the atmosphere and you put it somewhere where it doesn't affect climate, like in the ground. Or you can turn it into something. And we actually have technology that turns carbon into stone. They're running that in Iceland right now. And a new Canadian company figured out how to suck carbon out of the air and turn it into liquid fuel, which would be Mm -hmm. incredible. It's just too expensive. And a price on carbon would actually make some of those technologies viable. But here's the thing. If you just continue producing as much carbon as you want and you say, oh, we're going to suck it out of the atmosphere, there is no way we are able to suck that much carbon out of the atmosphere. It's like saying, I'm going to get my stomach stapled, but I'm going to continue to eat 15,000 calories a day. (laughs) I mean, you just can't do that. The stomach can't keep up. So we can't just say, oh, we're going to suck it out of the atmosphere so we can keep on doing whatever we want to. No, we have to ratchet back what we're putting in the atmosphere and suck it out too. And then what you do with that carbon really matters. So for example, there's a location here in East Texas called Petronova, where they are capturing some of the carbon from burning natural gas before it goes into the atmosphere. Not a lot. There's nine different turbines and they're only capturing it from one. But what are they doing with that carbon? They're using it to inject into oil and gas wells to recover more oil and gas, which actually increases the net carbon emissions than if they weren't even doing it in the first place. So that is really sort of a boondoggle in terms of when it comes to reducing carbon emissions. It's actually increasing them. So that's the 
the number one thing that people often tout. It is a possible solution, but it isn't economically feasible and it only works if we put that carbon somewhere where it's not going to affect the atmosphere and we ratchet back the carbon we're putting in first. Now, the second thing people often bring up is nuclear, and I realize this is a really hot button topic because there's a lot of people who see nuclear power as the salvation of our society. The fact is, is that currently conventional nuclear power is so expensive that the plant that they were building in the Carolinas got canceled because they just couldn't even pay the bills. Now, there is brand new nuclear technology that has been developed called modular nuclear. Rolls-Royce is planning to build a number of small modular nuclear plants in the UK, and there's a company called New Scale, which is doing the same in Oregon. This modular nuclear is significantly more affordable. In fact, if it can be done properly, it's not going to be as cheap as wind or solar for generating electricity, but it is going to be at a level where it could provide the baseline load because you like to have a nice baseline load going because wind and solar are so variable. And although batteries and storage can certainly make up some of that, having a source that can continue on, no matter whether the wind is blowing or the sun is shining or not, is incredibly useful in stabilizing the grid. So that is something that could potentially contribute. But the real holy grail of electricity, of course, is nuclear fusion, and that's still a very long way off. Mm -hmm. They're building a plant in an experimental, not not one that could actually give us electricity, but just an experimental one called ITR. Mm -hmm. Its construction is estimated to cost about $65 billion. They're not going to finish it until 2035, which is five years after our first Paris goal. And then they can't even use it for power. They have to build what they call a demo station, which they don't think is going to be operational until the second half of this century. So there is no free lunch when it comes to energy. Everything has a cost, but increasingly we are realizing that the biggest cost of our energy is associated with coal, then with oil, and then lastly with natural gas. Catherine, I want to change gears for a second and talk to you about something else that usually comes up when we're talking to people about theories of change and climate change, which is disruption, right? Disruptive change, either in terms of a new technology or oftentimes people thinking about experiencing an impact from climate change that, you know, gets people to sort of awaken to the idea that that this is a real problem and we have to deal with it. I mean, it's an odd thing to be asking a question about disruptive change in a time where we're yeah. experiencing some disruptive change. So I, you know, I just curious as to whether or not you think either this particular type of disruptive change, like a global pandemic has us thinking a lot about, you know, the shape of our economy and the way that we act on a day-to-day basis and what we take for granted versus what we really need and all those types of things. I mean, do you think any of this provides an opportunity for us to think anew and or differently about climate just to, you know, pull that disruptive change out of the basket of potential ones? Well, with what's been happening to oil prices in the pandemic, I think we're absolutely (laughs) seeing a massive disruption in the energy markets. Oil was already a very volatile investment. And, you know, what's been happening these days has shown us that it is just things are happening that people never imagined. I mean, whoever imagined negative oil prices on oil futures? So we are certainly seeing a massive disruption, especially of regional economies. I mean, here in West Texas, The economy is primarily based on agriculture and energy extraction. Up in Alberta and Canada, it's the same situation. In fact, they're potentially even more dependent on energy, on uh, oil and gas extraction than, than Texas is as a whole. So we are seeing huge disruptions, first of all, in the demand for fossil fuels. We are also seeing huge disruptions in our transportation sector. 
We are seeing massive shifts in industrial production around the world that is actually affecting clean energy because a lot of the factories that produce the components for clean energy technology had to had to shut down during the pandemic. So what's going to happen at the end of this is really anybody's guess. And it could go multiple ways, right? So it could be the case where people say, oh, no, well, we've just got to do exactly what we've done before. we got to get back to where we were before as quick as possible and stay there as long as possible, which would have the effect of significantly delaying climate action and the forward momentum of the clean energy economy. Or people could say, look at what happened to us. We need a more secure basis for our economy. How can we make our economy more resilient and less prone to and how can clean energy play into that mix? And then in other places, they might say, oh my goodness, look at the blue skies that we're experiencing. We haven't seen drops in air pollution like this for decades. How could we ensure the health of the people who live in our region? One of the biggest ways is through transitioning to clean energy so we could keep the doors open, keep the lights on, keep the economy running, keep our transportation going keep sending people to work and kids to school, but we could still keep on having this incredible clean air that saves millions of lives as a result. Again, I think we could go multiple ways on this and we're going to have to see what happens. Yeah, that's for sure. So one more question before I ask you about some of your favorite sources for good, you know, climate information for those who are curious out there. You know, you're a scientist, but you spent, you know, a huge amount of time talking with people about the challenge of climate change. I just wanted to know, you know, from your perspective, how do you go into a conversation with somebody who has maybe a different set of views from you on climate. You you mentioned it's one of the most polarizing issues in American politics today. And, and I think, you know, in talking with people around the world, people come from all different perspectives on this issue. I mean, how do you think about it when you want to talk to somebody about this challenge that really doesn't think about it a lot or or maybe has a very different perspective than you? How do you go into that conversation? Well, I have a lot of those conversations. Um, I live I live here in West Texas. Um, my husband pastors an evangelical church. I connect with people yeah. who are colleagues or students at the university, neighbors, people in the grocery store, a lot of people online, people where I go to give talks, who have a lot of different opinions on climate change. And I really like something called the Six Americas of Global Warming. It is something that's used by the Yale Program on Climate Communication. And rather than dividing us into two groups, people often divide us into two groups. You have believers, you have deniers. Well, I don't like either of those words. Because first of all, I don't believe in global warming. It's not a religion. I'm a scientist. We look at the data and the data says the planet is warming and we've checked and humans really are responsible. No belief required. And then in terms of denier, that's a fighting word. If you call somebody a denier, I mean, you're immediately drawing a line in the sand. You're saying you're on the other side of it. And you're adding a side helping of judgment on that too. You're a bad person. So I really like the six Americas of global warming because what they do is they divide us out into six groups and they assign each group a label that is actually very accurate and descriptive of your perspective if you're in that group. So the first group is people who are alarmed about climate change. And alarmed doesn't mean like panicked and over the edge screaming down the street. Alarmed means I think we should do something about it. Like I see some smoke, so I think we should go check out the smoke. And if the house is on fire, I think we should call the fire department. That's alarmed. (laughs) Concerned is somebody who is catching a whiff of the smoke. Like, hmm, what is that? Maybe I need to go find out more about that. That's concerned. Then you have people who are cautious. Cautious people say, somebody said they smell something, but I'm not totally sure because somebody else said they don't smell something. (laughs) So I'm going to reserve judgment, but I'm open to hearing more. (laughs) And then 
Then we have um, people who are disengaged. Those are people who've been living under a rock the last few years and haven't actually heard anything about this. <laughs> and then we have a group of people who are doubtful. They have some pretty serious doubts. But then the last group of people we have are dismissive. And dismissive people are the people who it really is impossible to have a constructive conversation about climate change with. Mm -hmm. Why is that? It's because to them, rejecting the idea that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and we need to fix it. It's a core part of their identity. It's uh, something that, you know, Uncle Joe will bring up at Thanksgiving dinner every single time. Or they yeah. actually spend their evenings going online attacking climate scientists like me on social media or commenting furiously on news articles. Dismissive people, my personal definition, is if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone saying global warming is real and foot high letters of flame appeared to a dismissive person, <laughs> they would dismiss that. So why would they <laughs> accept anything I say? They won't. Here's the thing, though. I've told you the names of these groups, but I haven't told you the numbers. And you're going to be really surprised when I tell you the numbers. So alarmed are 31% of the American population. Concerned mm -hmm. are 26%. 57% of us, 57% are alarmed or concerned. So clearly that includes a number of Republicans. It's not just all the Democrats. Yeah. Then 16% are cautious. So you add that to the list, that's caught 75% of us are alarmed, concerned, or cautious about climate change. We either see the fire or we smell the smoke or we hear someone tell us there's smoke and we're willing to consider that there might be some. Disengaged people are 7%, doubtful are 10%, and dismissive are 10%. They're just 10%. Yeah. So why do we think there's so many of them? It's because they are so loud. They are everywhere on social media, being quoted in the media, commenting on, in the comment section. And again, I think it's really hard to have a constructive conversation with a dismissive person, but 90% of us aren't. And we yeah. can have constructive conversations there by starting with one key principle. And that is, let's find something we agree on first, rather mm. than jumping in with what we disagree with each other on, as we so often do on contentious issues. Let's find something that we agree on, whether it's the importance of national security or a healthy economy or clean air for our kids to breathe, or if we are people of faith, the importance of being a good steward, or the importance of caring for people who are less fortunate than us, or the fact that we might be a birder or a winter athlete, or we might fish or hunt, and we're concerned about the integrity of the ecosystem that supports the species that we're interested in. Find something that we agree on that we have in common, and then connect the dots to how climate change affects what we already care about, showing that who we are is already the perfect person to care. We don't have to change who we are. And then bring up a positive, constructive solution that is consistent with that person's values that does not involve socialism, communism, destroying the economy, shutting down the world, letting China or the United Nations or the Antichrist <laughs> run the world. Those are all actual <laughs> emails I have received. <laughs> I'm not making that up. But positive, beneficial solutions that they could say, oh, well, you know, if that's a solution and if, you know, if, if Exxon supports that or if such and such Republican congressman supports that, well, you know, maybe I could be on board with that, too. That's how we can start to see the long term change. And I go into that in more detail in my TED Talk, which you can post as a resource here. Absolutely perfect. Well, this is great. We've spent so much time talking with you, and I think it's been really fantastic. You've already done what we usually do at the end of these conversations, which is ask for a bunch of resources. You've given us a bunch throughout the talk that we've had today. Do you have any additional ones that you would care to recommend for people to check out? 
Absolutely. I love providing resources because so often people say, where can I find X? And I'm like, oh, it's already here. So (laughs) first of all, if you have questions on the science, and it's always helpful for us to feel like we kind of have those answers under our belt, not that the scientific answers are necessarily going to change Uncle Joe's mind per se, but just feeling the confidence that, okay, scientists really have checked this and we know that it isn't solar cycles or volcanoes. If you want the answers to those questions, skepticalscience.com has the answer to almost 200 frequently asked questions about climate change. And what I love about them is they give you a short answer, they give you a longer answer, and then they give you links to all the scientific studies so you can go as deep as you want, 100% transparency, skepticalscience.org. Then we have a YouTube series called Global Weirding. Not global warming, global weirding. Because what's happening in the places where we live is the weather's just getting weirder. <laughs> I mean, our droughts are getting stronger, wildfires are burning more area, hurricanes are getting more intense. Stuff is getting weirder. So global weirding is over 30 short videos that talk about frequently asked questions I get. You know, I live in this part of the country. What does climate change mean for me? Or it's just a few degrees. Why does that matter? Or is climate change really a pollutant? And what about those natural cycles? And our number one most watched episode, though, is what does the Bible say about climate change? That's the one that everybody wants to watch. So we pretty much covered the gamut with Global Weirding. And then in terms of solutions, Project Drawdown is such a great resource with encouraging practical positive solutions that people can get on board with. And then lastly, the Climate Leadership Council and the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus are great resources for people to check out who are interested in conservative and bipartisan solutions, along with Bob Inglis's organization, Republic N, E-N. That's perfect. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and and for all that you're doing to communicate on the issue of climate change. I think your theory of change on how we get from where we are today to where we need to be is is a really great one. And we're really pleased that you were able to come and share that with us today. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for discussing this, because, again, so often people kind of pigeonhole climate change as, oh, that's just an environmental issue or a green issue. But the reality is we only care about it because it affects everything we already care about. And national security is right at the top of that list. Absolutely. You know, speaking on behalf of CSIS, very engaged in national security issues, we're seeing it more and more. You know, our program sort of deals with energy security and climate change, but every program here, whether they have something to do with the natural environment or not, is experiencing the ways in which, uh, you know, as you started out your talk, climate change is the threat multiplier in the context in their working. So we we really do have to be able to talk about this with a wide variety of, of different audiences. So we really appreciate your dedication to doing that. Indeed. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Take care. Thank you. 